So I've heard some talk lately about some guys just getting really excited because college football season is only about a month away. Now, I'm not really that big of a college football fan. I prefer baseball, but even as a casual observer, it doesn't take much to know that Alabama is just the cream of the crop when it comes to college football. In fact, they have won six of the last 12 college football championships. And so with an unprecedented just level of dominance like that, well, they want to keep the architect of the program in place. And so that is Nick Saban. When it comes to college football coaching, Nick Saban is the man. I mean, he is in a class of his own. And so the University of Alabama, they just ponied up this offseason and extended his contract through the year of 2029. I mean, I think they paid him more money that's in the whole state of Alabama. I mean, they are going all in because they want to keep this thing going. Now, other programs, they look around and they're a little jealous of Nick Saban's success and the success of Alabama, and they want that guy to be their coach. But, of course, he can't be their coach because he's locked up. Alabama has him locked up. And so when you can't get the man, when you can't get the genius, what do you do? Well, you go and you find people who have been around the man. You find people who share his same tactics and his same strategies, people who've learned from him. You find people who've been with him. And so that's what the other programs have done. They've gone out and they found Nick Saban disciples because they want guys who know his strategies, who think the way he thinks, who knows how to recruit the way he can recruit and who can build a program the way he built the program. And so you look and there's a whole list, a whole slew of coaches who've come from this Nick Saban coaching tree. There's Jimbo Fisher, Kirby Smart, Jeremy Pruitt, Will Muschamp, and the list just goes on and on. They couldn't get Nick Saban, so they went and they got the next best thing. They got the guys who've been around him. So the question for us comes when the world looks out, out at everything and everything is broken and it's falling apart and there's so much pain and so much hurt and they wonder, will God ever love them? And they don't know if they can approach him. So they look to the next best thing. They want to find people who've been around them, people who will love the way he loves and treat them the way God treats them, who've walked with him, who understands him. If people are looking for that, the question comes, will they look for you? Will they look for me? This morning, we're going to see just some guys who've been around Jesus, the guys who Jesus calls who exactly is a disciple. We'll check it out in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Last week, we began our new series, Disciples Making Disciples, and we saw our clear marching orders that God calls all of us to go to make disciples who they themselves are able to make disciples. We know the mission, and so now we've got to be really clear. Okay, so what exactly is a disciple, or better yet, who is a disciple? That's what we'll focus on together this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Let's check it out. While they were walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Now, we're at the very beginning here of Jesus' public ministry. Before this point, Jesus, he's been baptized by John. And after his baptism, he goes and he spends 40 days just on this retreat, basically, with the Father, just uh, fasting and really uh, spending that time understanding that, hey, this whole ministry, everything that I'm going to do is going to be born out of the will of the Father. And he's going to have to depend upon the Father for everything. And so he has this time away, just this special time he has with God the Father. Then right after that, right after he's somewhat weak, after fasting all this time, well, then he's tempted by Satan. And so after you get out of all that, the baptism, the fasting, the time away, and the temptation, well, Jesus emerges and he knows three things crystal clear. He knows, he has a very clear picture of who he is, what he is to do, and what it's going to cost him. And so out of all this, knowing that, Jesus begins his public ministry. And he begins his public ministry by calling leaders. He starts with four guys. These are the first four leaders that he calls, his first four disciples. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus is so misunderstood and was so misunderstood back then by the religious community of the day was because of the leaders that Jesus called. I mean, think about this. Jesus, he's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And so you would expect that when this long-awaited Jewish Messiah comes, that when he forms his leadership team and he gets his group together, well, he's going to choose like strong Jewish leaders. But that's not exactly where, what Jesus does. I mean, you would expect Jesus to go to Jerusalem to find these people. But that's not where Jesus goes. Jesus is in Capernaum. It's in Galilee. He begins his public ministry in Galilee. Now, you need to understand just some of the Galilean history, okay? Galilee is the northern part of Judea. And Galilee, about 360 years prior, this area had been conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And so all of this Hellenistic influence was prominent in that area. And it was only about 60 years prior to Jesus coming that the Romans had taken it over. And so because you have the Hellenistic Greek influence and then the Roman influence, this is somewhat of a cultural melting pot. You got all these different influences going on because the Greeks and the Romans, well, they bring their languages, they bring their architecture, they bring their forms of government, their philosophy, their religions, and the list goes on. So with this kind of a cultural environment, the Jews in the south, the Jews in Jerusalem, the devout religious Jews, they look up at the area of Galilee and even the Jews there, they see them as second class kind of sellout Jews because yeah, there were pockets of devout, faithful, orthodox Judaism in Galilee, but there's also a lot of people who've They've just made compromises to kind of fit in with the culture and to get by. And so it's not the place that you would expect Jesus to go to call his disciples. And when he does go, we get the idea very clearly that Jesus, he isn't searching for one of those pockets of devout Orthodox Judaism because he calls fishermen. Now, when Jesus calls fishermen, you have to remember, what do fishermen do all day? Well, they're fishing. And when they're fishing, what are they touching? Fish. And a lot of them, dead fish, right? They're touching a lot of dead fish. Now, what does touching dead fish make you? 
unclean. And so if you're unclean, now you're not allowed to go to temple. You're not allowed to worship. So these guys, these fishermen, they weren't the most orthodox. They weren't the most religious. They were touching dead fish. They're always ceremonially unclean. These guys weren't the guys who were showing up at temple all the time. In fact, we even know from John's gospel that after the disciples are called and when they do make it down to Jerusalem, that they were amazed. And what were they amazed? Is that the buildings? What does that tell you? They'd probably never been there before. They'd probably never seen those those buildings in Jerusalem. Never seen the temple there before. Now Galilee to Jerusalem is only about a four-hour walk, but it's a trek these guys had never made. They just weren't that devout. They just weren't that committed to their Judaism. It's interesting, isn't it? that these would be the guys Jesus would choose. I mean, why would he choose them? Why not go to Jerusalem and find the most devout, the most orthodox, the most religious? Well, because all those devout, orthodox, religious people, well, they had ideas about the Messiah. They had certain mold that this Messiah would fit. They knew just what he would do. And the problem with having all that knowledge and believing all these things, knowing all these things, is that Jesus wasn't going to fit their mold. He wasn't going to do just what they thought they, that he should do. And they, by having this religiosity and this morality, well, they thought themselves better than everybody else. They thought of themselves as better than those second-class Jews up in Galilee and Far better than any Samaritan or Gentile. Jesus, he goes to these fishermen in Galilee. Why? Because they don't have all this unlearning to do. He doesn't go to the temple people. He doesn't go to the church people. He doesn't go to the religious people. He goes to the fishermen. Why? Because it's a whole lot easier to learn than it is to unlearn. All those other people, they're going to have a whole bunch of unlearning to do. And as we'll see through the Gospels, for a lot of them, it's going to be a hill too, too tall to climb because they've been so informed by their religiosity. They've been so informed by their tradition that when Jesus comes and he just breaks the mold, well, they, they can't get by it. Jesus wants people. He wants men and women who he can just pour into a compassion for people, a love for people, not because they are better, but simply because they've been touched by the grace of God. Now they have something to offer all of these others. And so he calls these disciples in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, because God wants men and women who will simply be marked by him. Not marked by religiosity, not marked by tradition, not marked by what they think and they know ought to be, but simply marked by Jesus. See, that's our challenge, isn't it? That we are marked simply by Jesus. And sometimes our church experience marks us the wrong way. And we do sometimes have some unlearning to do because we don't want to be marked by any kind of empty religion. We don't want to be marked simply by tradition or how things ought to be. We want to be marked simply by Jesus. It's interesting. You would think that Jesus, he would have gone to Jerusalem. He would have picked Levites, you know, the priestly tribe. He didn't do that. In fact, the only Levite that many scholars believe that Jesus picked was Matthew. His name was Levi. And what was Matthew? 
he was a tax collector. I mean, you talk about the worst Levite around. This guy had sold out all the other Jews so he could work for Rome and collect taxes from his fellow Jews. This is like the worst Levite you could possibly find. And he's the one that Jesus chooses. Why? Because he doesn't bring in all the baggage of all this temple experience and all this religion and all this tradition of the way things ought to be. He's a blank slate that God, that God and Jesus can just imprint his image on Matthew and on the other disciples. If you struggle in wondering, are you qualified? Can you be a disciple? Are you one who's actually able to make other disciples? Maybe you don't feel like you've got it together. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have enough this or that. This should give you great confidence that God qualifies you. It's not, it's not all this other stuff. It's not your religiosity. It's not all the tradition. It's not all this information. These guys don't have much. What are they going to have? They're simply going to have a dependence and a relationship with Jesus. This should give us great confidence that God calls you and me. Not because of everything we bring to the table. No, it's none of that. It's simply because of who Jesus is. And then he will mark them so that he can use them. In this passage, Jesus calls two sets of brothers. Notice, he calls them. They don't just volunteer. They don't raise their hand. Hey, Jesus, go ahead. Come over here to my boat. Pick me. You know, they're not saying, hey, Jesus, you know, we don't really have a whole lot else going on in our lives. We're kind of bored. You know, we, we don't mind like hanging out with you for a little bit if that would be helpful. No, these guys aren't volunteering. He's calling them. Jesus calls people. He does not ask for volunteers. Now, it's important to recognize that sometimes we have this picture that, hey, Jesus is walking along and he just notices Andrew and Peter, James and John says, hey, come follow me. And they just leave everything and follow him. It's important to understand that these guys aren't just meeting Jesus for the first time. Okay, we know that from John's gospel that they had spent some time with Jesus. Andrew was the first to meet him. Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist's ministry. He'd heard about Jesus. There was some belief in Jesus. And Capernaum just wasn't all that big. I mean, it was a fishing village. And so, yeah, they had met Jesus. They've had conversations with Jesus. They knew Jesus. There was some belief in Jesus, a belief maybe that he was the Messiah even. But the relationship at this point would still be best described as acquaintances, not really disciples yet, not really followers yet. You know, there's a big difference between being an acquaintance with Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. There's a big difference there. Some of us, we know Jesus. We, we know his commands. We, we, his words are great. We know what he's, he's done and what he said and it's, it's all good. I mean, we think it's incredible. It's, it's life-giving even. But we don't follow it. We just do what we think is best in the way we think we want to live life. We don't follow. We're acquaintances. We're not really disciples. So there's a big difference between being an acquaintance and a disciple. So now Jesus, he calls He's forcing the decision. Are, are you going to merely stay as acquaintances who know me, maybe even believe in me to some degree here? But are you just going to stay on your boats and doing what you've always done? Or are you going to follow me? He's forcing a decision. Now notice, these guys, they thought they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. I mean, they, 
in those day, in that day and age, when you grew up and you were a man, you just did whatever your father did for the most part. I mean, if he was a fisherman, you would be a fisherman. That's just what you did. And so there's some honor to that. You know, you're taking over the family business, all these things, but you just do what you think you're supposed to do. You know, that's how life often works for us, isn't it? We just do the next thing because, hey, this is the next thing we're supposed to do. We just believe we ought to do that. You know, you go to high school, you graduate high school, and what's the next thing you're supposed to do? Well, someone will tell you, oh, go to college. So you go to college. Someone will tell you, oh, you should enlist in the military. So you enlist in the military. Someone will tell oh, just get this job. Here's this job opportunity. And so you just do the next thing. You meet someone, you start dating, what happened? Well, you just do the next thing. You get married, you have kids, you, you, you save up so you can buy a house. You keep doing the next thing. Why? Because you believe that that next thing, if I just do the next thing, well, that'll bring happiness, that'll bring success, that'll bring fulfillment. And so you keep doing what you're doing, you keep following what you're following, believing that will get you there. That will get you to the place you want to be. Problem is, you can follow whatever it is you're following. But if you're not following Jesus, it won't. It won't get there. It won't lead you there. Yeah, it'll lead to something where you don't want to be. You'll travel really fast and you'll end up making a really good time arriving at a place you never intended to be. See, for the disciples, what they were doing seemed good. I mean, it was a good job. It was hard work, no doubt. I mean, there's late nights casting the nets into the sea and hard work pulling them out. But it seemed good. I mean, it provided a life for them. It put food on, the, food on the table, a roof over their head. There was some camaraderie on the boats and the hard work that you were doing together and getting to swap your fishing stories and all this. Yeah, there, there were the drawbacks too, but it just seemed good. This will get them there. Most people do what they do because they believe this will get them there. But if you're not following Jesus... It won't. So Jesus, he calls. They don't volunteer. He calls and he forces the decision. This is not a decision to volunteer every once in a while. It's not a decision just to like pray a prayer. It's not a decision just to check a few religious boxes or anything like that. I mean, you think about this. This calling that Jesus is placing, it changes everything. It leaves no aspect of their life untouched. Jesus, he's walking along the shoreline for uh, Peter and Andrew. They're casting their nets. For James and John, they're cleaning their nets. And this is how God often starts things. He calls. I mean, if you go through scripture and you read scripture, I mean, one of the key themes that you'll see just emerge is how often God calls. I mean, he calls Think about it. Back in Genesis, God calls. He sends forth his word and he calls the universe into existence. God calls Abraham and God calls Noah and God calls Moses and he calls Samuel and he calls David. He calls Mary and Joseph. He calls his disciples. He calls Zacchaeus. He calls Paul. I mean, the list goes on and on and on how God calls. God wants to start something. And so what does he do? He calls. You don't volunteer. You don't raise your hand and say, pick me. No, God calls and he calls you. 
and he calls me to be his disciples. Now, Jesus, he lets these guys know right up front that he's going to change things. I mean, he tells them, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That lets them know right off the bat, hey, that's not what they are right now, right? Right now, they're fishers of fish. And so you think about fishermen and what do fishermen say? Shh, 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 quiet, quiet, quiet. Don't let the fish hear you. You're going to scare the fish away. I mean, fishermen are used to working with fish. They tell their fish stories. They know how to fish. I mean, these guys are master expert fishermen. And when you're a fisherman, well, you pick up some bad habits too. I mean, you tell some off-color jokes. You use some colorful language. We see that in Peter as he's going to curse later on. I mean, there's some, there's some things when you're just around the guys all the time like that, out on the boat, that you, you pick up some things. And this is where they are right now. This is the state in which Jesus finds them. And he says, I'm going to make you not fishers for fish anymore. I'm going to make you fishers of men. As good as you are at catching fish, I'm going to make you that good at catching people. Now, what are you good at? Maybe you're good with numbers and finances. Maybe, maybe you're good at... Uh, computers and technology. Maybe you're good with animals or athletics. Whatever it is you're good at. Maybe you're just really handy and you're good with your hands and you can build stuff. Whatever it is that you're really good at, Jesus calls and he says, I'm going to make you that good at dealing with people, at impacting people, at making disciples. This is what he does is Jesus comes and he creates in us as we follow him this love for God. And as we develop a love for God, what happens? We develop a love for people because that's Jesus. That's our God, how he loves people. And when he imprints himself on us, he causes us to change what we care about. And yet maybe we were really passionate about numbers and finances and, and working with our hands and building and all this stuff. And he doesn't say that's bad. No, he says, I'm going to use that. But I'm going to use all those gifts and all those skills and all those passions that I put in your heart. And I'm going to create in you a greater passion, a passion for people. And then you're going to just as good as you are with all that other stuff, with all those talents and abilities that I've given you. I'm going to equip you to be that good with people. And so God, he uses our awkwardness and he uses our quirkiness and he uses our over-the-topness and he uses our shyness and our introvertedness and our extrovertedness and he uses these different personality traits that we have and he uses them in such a way to impact people in a way that only you can because he's designed you to make disciples in a way that only you can. He's why, that's what he, he wants to call out of you. And that's what he's calling out of these guys. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And surely some of them must have laughed. Nah, I don't even like people all that much. You know, I'd rather just stay on the boat and work with fish. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to change what you care about. That's what he does in our lives too, doesn't he? He causes us to change what we care about. He causes us to truly care about people. You know, the interesting thing about this scene is... You would expect that when Jesus makes a call like this, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, that there would be some kind of conversation after that, you know, that the disciples might have said, well, okay, Jesus, just uh, where are we following you to? 
What will we be doing as we're following you? How long will we be gone? What is this going to entail? What is this going to cost? I mean, how are we going to still provide for our families and make sure they have food to eat and everything? How, how is all this going to work, Jesus? Where, where is this going to lead to? What are you going to do? Why, why do you need it? You would expect some type of conversation. Anybody with any common sense, we think, would have this type of conversation before they just leave it all. Because think about this scene. These guys leave their nets. I mean, James and John, they just leave the nets in the hands of their father Zebedee. And he's there and he's watching this whole thing. I mean, this was the business that he had probably, that Zebedee had probably inherited from his father, who had probably had inherited from his father. Now there's a fleet of boats and everything. And the plan is that when Zebedee's gone, he's passing the family business down to James and John. And they're leaving? I mean, there's some honor in this, and they're just leaving the nets with their father hanging on to the net. I mean, this is an intense scene. I mean, what, what happens? What is going on in their heart that these grown men with families would leave everything to follow Jesus without knowing the answers to all of the questions they surely must have had? See, there was something about them. When you have a relationship with Jesus, you understand there is something so magnetic about him, something so life-changing about him that he's worth giving everything up to follow. And that's what they do. You know, they only have moments. I mean, Jesus is walking along. Surely he's going to keep on walking. He's not going to stay there. He's like, well, I'll just wait till you make your decision. No, they have the moment, and then they will have decided one way or the other. They can hang on to their nets and they will have decided or they let them go and they will have decided. They don't know everything. They don't know the cost that will come. You know, we don't know everything either. Jesus calls us and we don't have this clear picture. Sometimes we think, oh, if I just knew everything that this would entail, then I would go. We don't know. We, we don't know the full details of the cost that's until We know some of the costs. These guys knew some of the costs. They knew right then that they would be leaving their nets. They knew that they were leaving their father, their family business. They knew they were leaving all of these things behind. And we know some of the costs too, don't we? We, we know that, hey, we're going to have to get up extra early in the morning sometimes and just kind of spend time with him. We know that we're going to open up our homes and that we're going to be outward uh, driven. We know that we got to get out of the building and into the dark places of culture and just shining the light there. We know some of the costs. We know that we're going to be labeled, that we're going to be teased, that people might say some things about us. We know some of the cost. But we don't know all the costs. These guys didn't know all the costs. They had no idea of what they were signing up for. They had no idea how Jesus would be mocked and scorned, crucified. They had no idea that they would be called to stand up in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, these uneducated fishermen. They had no idea of the missionary trips that they would be going on. They had no idea that these Jewish men would now develop this heart and passion for Gentiles. They had no idea that they would be on the run for part of their lives. They had no idea that they would die for this. But you know what? If Jesus would have told them all that right up front, they probably would have said no. It would have just been too much. I mean, to hear all that information, to have all your questions answered, it would have just been too much. But once you start walking with Jesus, once you start living with him and understanding him, once you're on mission with him, oh, whatever the cost, you'd pay it. 
there becomes no doubt. Oh, this is what you want me to pay? Yes, I'll pay it. I mean, this is where Peter ends up, right? Peter says, oh, I'm going to die. You want to crucify me? That's fine. I'm glad, I'll gladly die for Jesus, but you just got to do me one favor. Crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die in the same fashion, in the same manner that my Savior was, was killed. See, you don't have to have all your questions answered. You just have to follow. That's the mark of a disciple. A disciple follows. We had the commands. We had the marching orders. We had the mission. You just have to follow. You have to be marked by who you follow. Why would they pay that cost? Why would these guys do all these things? Because they were marked by Jesus. They weren't marked by the temple. They weren't marked by religiosity. They weren't marked by tradition. They were marked by Jesus. And so, hey, they're walking with him and they're talking with him. They're learning from him. They're doing the things that Jesus did imperfectly. Yes, but oh, you follow their stories and you see remarkable growth to the point that there's no doubt those guys had been with Jesus. Those guys were marked by Jesus. You understand? Jesus is calling. The question is, are we coming? Because we can sit here and we can hang on to the things that we think will bring us happiness, will bring us joy, will bring us satisfaction. And we look at the calling that Jesus has, and we know there's a cost to it. We understand some of that. And so we hesitate sometimes. We get a little skittish about it. Why? Because we want a life of happiness. We want a life of purpose and meaning, but don't let it cost too much. The thing is this, if we keep following the thing that we think will get us there, if we're following anything other than Jesus and following him the way he wants to be followed, it won't. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us not because of our qualifications, not because of who we are, but simply out of your grace and because of who you are. That you equip us, that you make us able to go and impact people, to disciple them so that they can disciple others. God, you're calling. May we answer the call. May we come. We're not volunteering. We're responding to this gracious call that you have given. But we need your help along the way. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.